we are going to join back up with our buddy Jacob this week. And, and so we're, we're going to revisit a place that we touched on last week. And, and this is for all of you who you've been here before in Genesis. This is where Jacob wrestles with God. It's pretty unique text. We don't see this kind of thing happen very often. You've probably uh, never physically wrestled with God yourself. In fact, I'm positive you haven't, but Jacob did. He did here in chapter 32, but this is a place that's very monumental in the life of Jacob, but it's really monumental for all of us. And I want to show you how today. And so if you will, join with me looking at chapter 32. We're, we're actually going, to the, the text is 22 through 32. We're going to backtrack just a tad uh, to get the proper context so that we're all feeling uh, what Jacob was feeling as we enter into the scene for the day. And so if you remember last week, I thought Pastor Keith did such a great job at helping to, to set the, the mind of Jacob. And so you, you've got Laban who is after Jacob. You've got Esau, who is, uh, in this text, he's going to be pursuing Jacob. And so you've got a guy that wants to hurt you and a guy that said he would kill you. And they're both coming for you at the same time. And that's where Jacob is when we meet him in chapter 32. And so I want you to see uh, his mindset. And so join with me in verse 6 of chapter 32. We're told, and the messengers returned to Jacob. These are messengers that he sent to go talk with Esau. And so they went, they told Esau that Jacob wanted to meet with him. And Esau said, well, I'm just going to come find him. And they said, he's going to bring 400 guys with him. Okay. And so that's where we are. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That's scary. Okay, so we see verse 7, then Jacob says, was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And so this is Jacob doing what Jacob does. He's, he's scheming, he's plotting, he's thinking. And this is a pretty smart plan. But in the midst of this plan... I believe overwhelmed with distress, he is going to pray. And so I want you to see what happens there. Verse nine, and Jacob said, oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, oh Lord who said to me, he's gonna recount words from the Lord to him. He says, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Jacob says, listen to verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. He says in verse 11, listen to him speaking to the Lord. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. 
You see Jacob, he's doing what we would do. He's in the midst of a scary situation. He is afraid and he's distressed. And he, you know, it's not just him anymore. It's him and his actions have led to, uh, and in a lot of ways, his irresponsibility has led to a stressful situation that involves him and it involves his large family. And so Jacob, feeling the weightiness of this, he now goes to the Lord and he's asking for protection. He's asking God to remember what he had promised to him years before. He says, you said you would keep me safe. You said you would do good to me. You said that my family would be large. You said that all this would happen. Please do it now. Protect me from Esau. Protect my family. And we see Jacob... uh, a little more humble than the other times we've seen him. We see him a little low. And it's here that God is going to encounter Jacob personally. God's going to encounter him one-on-one. Look at verse 22. We'll start working our way through our text today. And the way that we're going to do this today, we're going to walk through the passage and then we're going to apply it. Okay? So we'll walk through the whole thing and then we'll come back to our truths that are inside your worship guide. And so look with me, verse 22. It says, the same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And verse 24 tells us, and Jacob was left alone. Man, Jacob alone. This this is the first time we've seen this in years. And and I understand. I mean, you know, I've got four girls at my house. You know, he's got more. He's got more people at his house, okay? But he's like married to four of them. But he, he he has lots of people at his house. And there's just not a time for Jacob to be alone. This is the first time we've seen him alone in years. I'm sure he has, but we haven't seen it. And right here, he has now sent everybody away. The plan is now in action. Everybody that he cares about is gone. They're all on their way to meet Esau. And Jacob's left alone. Verse 24, let's pick up already where we, what we've read. Let's read it again. And Jacob was left alone. Immediately after this, look what happens. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, I I don't know about you, but like, I'm just reading straight through. Like I hadn't been here before. I've never heard a sermon on it before. If I'm just reading straight through it, I get to this point and I go, what? A man wrestled with him. You know, and automatically my mind is probably doing what what, uh, Jacob was doing. I'm saying, this guy, this has to be Esau. You know, this is somebody that he's offended. This is Esau. This is Laban. This is one of Laban's guys. I don't know who this is, but this is somebody out to get Jacob. He's wrestling with him. It says until the break of the day. Verse 25 tells us that when the man, still unidentified, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, 
he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, uh, is Harrison Turner in the room? There's Harrison, okay. Harrison, when he was in high school, he, he won the state wrestling championship at County High for his division. Okay, so he, he's a good wrestler. I'm sure he's still a good wrestler. I can guarantee you he could body slam me on this stage right now, okay? No doubt, no doubt. But, but one thing I know about Harrison, Harrison knows all kinds of submission moves. You know, if any of you that have really messed around in martial arts or wrestling or whatever, I mean, you know the moves, you know that if you can just get them in this position, you can choke them out or you can do whatever. You, you understand wrestling. Now, one thing you know is, is this, is that a, this, this right here, that's not a wrestling move. Y'all ever seen that one get used in at work? I use that, Harrison slams me, okay? Like that doesn't work. But yet Jacob is in a match with this man who is unidentified. The man touches his hip and automatically his hip comes out of socket. Now we don't, you know, there's some disagreement about what that actually means. Some people believe that that is the the tendon and you'll see why that, why I would bring up tendon, that the tendon uh, was torn in that moment. But most people believe exactly what we read there, that that it just came out of socket. Now, how many of you have ever had a a, uh, bone come out of socket before? You know, a finger out of socket, whatever. I have not. From what I understand, it is very painful, okay? Yeah, Dawn, wow. Dawn is shaking it. You know, girl. For real. Okay, Dawn, his hip came out. Okay? In the midst of wrestling, his hip comes out. Why? A touch. Verse 26 says, Then he, and this is still the mystery man, is speaking. He said, Let me go, for the day is broken. And and just for you Bible scholars in the house, this could be something like this. The sun's coming up. You can't see my face. We got to get done with this conversation, this wrestling match. He says, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, Jacob said, listen, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All of Jacob's life, he has wrestled with people. All of his life. Jacob coming out of the womb. Well, actually, inside the womb, they're wrestling. Him and his twin brother Esau. Fighting inside the womb. Coming out, he is grabbing at the heel of Esau. Earning the name, you know, cheater, deceiver. One who grafts at the heel. That's Jacob. Jacob's been wrestling all his life. He grew up in a home of favoritism. Isaac, of course, loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. Rebecca, she loved Jacob more than she loved Esau. Favoritism in the house. There was struggle and strife in the house. And over all of it, there was this great prophecy that existed, this promise that existed that the younger son, that he would be the one that would be in charge. The older would serve the younger. It was a promise that he knew about from when he was young. And I'm sure Rebecca spoke it into his life every chance she could get. I'm sure she probably spoke this into her husband's life as well. But 
Isaac didn't get it. Esau didn't get it. Rebecca didn't get it either. Neither did Jacob. They wrestled. They fought. They schemed. And what we see is Jacob, his whole life is against man to try to earn what only God could give. We see Jacob talks uh, Esau out of his birthright. We see him uh, fool Isaac out of the family blessing. And here's the thing. He is willing to fool someone. He's willing to do something at any cost to get the blessing. Even if he did it in a way that wasn't right. We know that if we're honest with ourselves, that we're as hard-headed as Jacob. With God's promises spoken over all of our lives. And yet many of us constantly striving to earn them without God himself. Even when God spoke truth into his life in chapter 28, and you'll remember the message, the one with uh, the vision and the ladder from heaven. Uh, Jacob, in response to the Lord's promises to him, the promises, the very promises that he prayed here in 32, even when God speaks truth over him, Jacob still has a bargaining element to his response. Okay, if you will protect me, if you'll get me back here, then you'll be my God. Like, even with promises spoken directly over his head, he's still bargaining. He's still not clinging. He knows what they are. He just doesn't trust them. I want you to notice back to our passage here in the wrestling match that's going on. That the blessing is not given until Jacob gives his name. Uh, the mystery man, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, I, I want you to imagine, first of all, if you've ever wrestled with anyone, uh, you know how tiring it gets very quickly. And they have, as mysterious as the scene is, they've been wrestling uh, all, all night. And they seem like a pretty equal match. Until the hip comes out. And then Jacob begins to cling. I won't let you go until you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Jacob. Now, I don't believe that we should miss the beauty of this. This is Jacob saying, I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheater. I've been trying to hold on to this my whole life. I've been fighting. I've been wrestling to get what now I realize can only come from you. So with my hip out of socket, with pain everywhere in my body, I'm clinging to you. I will not let go until you bless me. Verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And it was there that we're told, look at it in the text, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you need to. I circled it in mine. It says, and there he blessed him. It happened. What he wanted all of his life, it happened right there in 32. Now, I want you to think about the nature of blessing. Uh, Blessing, favor, given, spoken over, spoken into. This is always something that we see is spoken into the life of another. And yet you notice here in this text, we see wrestling, Uh, We see short conversation. We see these things, but we don't see or we don't hear the actual blessing itself. What do you think God said to him? What do you think he did? Do you think there was a, a, a stopping of the wrestling and more of a holding? What do you think it was like? For God to finally, with him face to face, just speak the truth that Jacob always wanted to hear, but he tried to get it from other people. He had it spoken directly into his heart from God himself, face to face. God blessed him that day. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of that place. I've always heard Peniel Tim Keller says Peniel, so we're going to go with that. Uh, Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. My life has been spared. Verse 31 tells us that the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the tendon of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the tendon of the thigh. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would take this text that we have seen, this text that we have heard, and that you would place it deep into our soul that you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit, that you would shine light into our lives, that you would expose death and resurrect a life that runs for Christ, that flourishes in the gospel. God, may we be a people who limp because we've been with you, but may we be a people who are forever changed by your grace. God, I pray that you would do a work today that would help our hearts to cling to you and to your promises like never before. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want you to open up your worship guide and look along with me at our outline. We, we find in this amazing and mysterious encounter uh, here with Jacob and God, several sweet reminders. And here's what those reminders are. Sweet reminders of God's desire to encounter us, to wrestle with us, and to change us forever. That's what we're going to see today. And so, uh, number one, I, I want you to be reminded, as I have been reminded this week, that God encounters us alone. 
God encounters us alone. Now, <clears throat> when I say that, I don't want you to be confused. You may have heard, but we're really, really big on finding community here. <laughs> we desire you to know God and find community and live on mission. And we believe that in community, that that is the greatest place for you to have truth spoken into your life from other people. We know that it is when we are around brothers and sisters in Christ that oftentimes we are picked up, we are lifted up, we are encouraged, we're spurred on to love and good works. Oftentimes this is where we're set back on track. We know that when we come together in this room, when we meet to worship the Lord together and be under the teaching of God's word, that God uses these times to do wonderful things in our life to encourage us. And once again, to build us up in Christ Jesus, to make us more like who he is finally going to make us to be in Christ. We know that he does that. But it is also very true that when God encounters us, he encounters us alone. And we're using that word because it's found here in the text, but maybe another way to say it would be this. He encounters us personally. He encounters us personally. Look back with me at, 30, uh, at chapter 32, verse 24. It says, and Jacob was left alone. This is the context where it happens. He's alone. Uh, I wonder, have you had a personal encounter with God? Like really, like, like have you had a personal experience with God himself? If you are a Christian today, you have. You've had an actual personal encounter with God and his word. Oftentimes this comes in the midst of what we might call a crisis. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of leading a breakout session and uh, it was at a, a college retreat or a college conference called Pursue. And the breakout that I led, it was uh, the gospel in times of crisis. You know, and I thought to myself, I wonder who, you know, will come to that. Is that going to be something that people are like, hey, I think I'll go to a happier one. Or, you know, I didn't know what would happen. And it was full every time. Why? Oh, because all of us understand the reality of crises, don't we? We know they happen. And when we're in one, it can be a miserable experience, filled with distress, filled with fear. That's where Jacob is when he encounters God. And for you in this room, we got story after story after story. If we were to go through and just, you know, evaluate everybody's life. Listen, everybody in this room has a story. Everybody's got a story. And many of your stories involve times of crisis where you were turned to the Lord. Times of crisis where you were low and you had to reach up. Times where you were desperate and you didn't know where else to go except to God, who you find was right there. Now, I don't think I'm wrong about this. I, I believe this is consistent with many stories. 
what a, a secular worldview will try to come in and say, hey, that's, that's why we call Christianity or any other religion just a crutch. Because it, it's when you're desperate and you just try to create something in your mind to make you feel better. I want you to know everyone, everyone who goes through a crisis, who loses control only to realize they never had it in the first place. They find themselves in a unique place where they're desperate and they're grasping at the heels of what they need is a blessing. Reaching for something real. You find the atheist who prays. You find the Christian that's, that's been uh, worn out of years uh, of, of maybe laziness in striving with God in prayer, only to hit a crisis to be on their face pleading with the Lord. Oftentimes, crisis is what leads us to a point where we reach out for the Lord. And I want you to know that in that time, God will encounter us alone. He'll encounter us personally. I I wonder when the last time it was when you wrestled with the Lord in prayer. I, I found this to be a very humbling point this week. For whatever reason, over the last... Uh, several months. I, I don't. I don't really know how to how to trace it. But back even in the summer, I, I felt as though I would get alone, but I couldn't make my mind or my heart be alone with God. Does that does that make sense? So like, it's not that I wasn't getting by myself. I was getting by myself and I had all the right parts. Like, you know, it was uh, this, God's word, it was coffee. It was uh, whatever I might need. I had the highlighters. I had everything that I would need. I tried to get on the floor. Uh, I tried to do anything that I could do. And yet it was as if I could not make my mind and I could not make my heart be satisfied being alone with God. I don't know why. It was like lesser things just filled my thoughts. Unimportant things. And they've shifted. I'm not trying to be funny, but like, I mean, like there was a time when it would be like, uh, who are we playing this week? What's going on? Are we going to win? To, uh, you know, I mean, just, anything. It could be sports. It could be family. It could be anything. It was like it crept in my mind and I wasn't able to just be alone with God and it was driving me crazy. And I've just kept clinging and kept it up just being with him until last weekend, last weekend, I went on a date with Catherine. We, we went to Birmingham. We, we stayed the night. Uh, Saturday morning, I got up and I was just reading God's word. And guess what? I encountered him. I don't know why that day and not the others, but I encountered him. I experienced him. I rested in him for the first time in a few weeks. I, I grasped hold of conviction that I needed. Convicted about God's heart, things that he cares about, all of a sudden became my thoughts and cares again. Man, when's the last time you personally encountered 
God. Think about Jesus in his life. Jesus would often retreat to pray. Jesus needed time to be with the Father. There's something to be said about being alone to encounter the God of the universe. I want to give you two truths under that point. Two encouragements. And here it is, church. Please hear. Pray even when you don't feel like it. You hear me? Pray even when you don't feel like it. Secondly, pray even when you don't know how. God's big enough for your poor prayers. Can, can you imagine my kids just wanting to be with me? Would I, would I say, oh, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. No, no, no. You didn't call on me correctly. No, no, no. Pray even when you don't feel like it and pray even when you don't know how. Pray. In this passage, listen, God is a pursuing God. This isn't Jacob looking for a fight, Jacob looking to wrestle God. This is God coming and wrestling him. God's here. God's here. Pray even when you don't feel like it and pray even when you don't know how. Secondly, I want you to see not only does God encounter us alone or encounter us personally, but God encounters us in our weaknesses. He encounters us in our weakness. Uh, this is such an interesting passage because if, you, if you're reading it, you notice something that's strange and it's that these guys, uh, they're, they're fighting or they're wrestling and they seem to be equal. Until what? Until the hip is touched. And, and it's here where Jacob realizes something. It's in his weakness, it's in his inability to fight anymore that he realizes this is God. This is the one I've been fighting against all of my life. I've got to just cling to him. See, Jacob had been, even though the promise was given to him, he'd been fighting, striving, struggling to obtain what was going to be given to him anyway. And it was here that he just clung on. It was in his weakness that he realized, oh, here's where I can be strong. Here's where I can get what I've always needed. Always desired. And so he clings. Maybe we could say it this way. It's here where Jacob realizes his biggest problem is not Esau. Church, I want you to hear me as clearly as I can say this, I believe. The gospel of Jesus shows us that Esau is not our problem. I don't know what your Esau is. I don't know what your Laban is, but it's not your greatest problem. And for many of you, you've been striving and fighting and struggling with things to try to win favor. And what you've been doing has been going about it the wrong, uh, you've been going about it with the wrong people in the wrong way. And your biggest problem wasn't even that thing itself. Uh, we're people who were born into this world resisting God's promises, resisting God. 
pushing away from God, wrestling against God, not wrestling with him. And yet it's in our weakness, in a place where we realize our neediness to him, that God encounters us. The gospel helps us see our greatest problem is not the Esau in our life. See, it was with Jacob, it was Esau, then it was Laban, it was Isaac, it was Rachel, but none of these could give him what he wanted. Only God himself. I want to take you to a couple of passages. Hold your place there in Genesis and look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writing about a similar truth here, talking about weakness. The Apostle Paul had, uh, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. This was something that was against him, something uh, that was an issue for him. And he went to the Lord three times and he asked that God would remove it. And I want you to see what the Lord says. It says, verse eight, it says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect. In weakness. Paul said, as we should, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, for the Christian, our weaknesses are not something to be embarrassed about. They're actually something to boast in because our weaknesses have helped us to see our need for our strong God. See, this is wonderful. Christianity is not a crutch. It's not a crutch for me. Christ is my life. It just happened to be in different moments of my life that I was able to understand I need him. I need him. He's all I have. It's like that scene in John 6. Everybody's leaving after Jesus gave that awesome sermon about eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, see ya. That's weird. Okay, and so they leave. It's in that moment that the disciples are just kind of clinging around and Jesus says, are you gonna go too? They said, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You're the giver of life. That's the Christian's testimony. When God encounters you, when when he encounters us personally, when he encounters us in our weaknesses, we realize our strength can only be found in him. But what about you? What about you? Do you fight against this? Are you scared to admit that you're weak? So listen, this is the the place that we have to be in to receive the strength that God is ready to give. I'll help you understand it, I believe, more clearly. Look at point number three. What a sweet reminder this gives that God encounters us 
Not only when we're alone, not only in our weakness, but God encounters us in his weakness. And I'm telling you today, if you get this, your life will never be the same. God encounters us in his weakness. Jacob wrestling all night. Jacob is, it appears to be either uh, like tied with him or winning. And we read this and we say, what is going on? This is the God who spoke all things into being and he's struggling wrestling with Jacob. At my house, it happens almost every day. It definitely happens on off days and weekends, but we have what we call daddy tickle fights. Okay, that's what, that's what happens at my house. Annie Ruth usually starts them. And, uh, but, but these are the, for all you dads who have girls, this is our version of wrestling, okay? It's just, we don't call it that, it's tickle fights. And so what, what happens is uh, they come up and they say, come on, Dale, let's have a tickle fight. And so they come up and they, they, they run. They want me to chase them and they want me to like throw them around and hit them with pillows and do all kinds of stuff like that and then just tick them and make them miserable and th- those kind of things. And so typically what we do, it's about a 30-minute deal where twice a lamp has gotten broken recently, but, but where we, you know, we wrestle and everything. Now, yes, there's three against one, okay? But... Hazel's one and Annie's four and Lucy's six. And Lucy's pretty strong, but she's not strong enough. And so here's the thing. How do we wrestle for 30 minutes? Because I lay down my strength. Any parent knows this. You lay down your strength. Usually I get on my back and I say, okay, y'all just jump on me and hit me as hard as you can. You know, that kind of thing. And I, I, I'm, I'm messing with them, but it's, but it's the point of anytime I want to, guess what I can do? flip over and tickle them. Okay, I got them. They're done. You know, no chance. I can hold them all down and tickle all their feet at the same time. They cannot get up. Why did it last so long? Because I let it happen for love. Isn't that it? I, I mean, I, I let it happen. Because for my Annie, especially, she feels so loved during those times. She needs it. That's why it goes on. I go on for longer. I may have a two hour tickle fight today because I love them. Why why would God wrestle with Jacob all night? Why? Why would he do this? Because that's what it took. That's what it took. And I want you to understand the sweeter truth and it's found not in Jacob. It's found in the greater Jacob. It's found in Jesus. Jesus. That Jesus Christ, God himself, he becomes human. He lives, he dies on a cross in our place. He raises to give us life. Why did he do that? It's Jesus, it's God becoming weak. The ultimate example of him becoming weak. Why? So that we could have the blessing. Do you see it? so that we could have the blessing, so that we could have him. And maybe the crazier thing, so that he could have us. Like he wants us. God encounters us in his weakness. 
Lastly, I want you to see God encounters us. Our God encounters leave us forever changed. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a wonderful pastor. For years and years, he was a doctor who became a, uh, a preacher, just a wonderful expositor. He was asked one time, he said, you know, how would you describe what a Christian looks like? And he said, one who walks with a limp. One who walks with a limp. Jacob left this wrestling match, renamed and walking with a limp. A constant reminder, a wound of grace. He left with it. Wounded by grace. Jacob bore in his body the mark of God's touch. I wonder today if that's you. If you've encountered God, listen, you have wounds of grace. Points that you look back and you say, oh man, that exists in my life and it reminds me every time my need for the Lord. I I even thought back for the Christian, everything changes so that we see all of life with many examples of this. I, I got one this morning with the passing of Miss Virginia. The passing of Miss Virginia reminds me of my need for God. Points me to hope. It's an example of wound of grace. Death is the greatest of all examples of that. God encounters leave us forever changed. In in closing, ask Jennifer if you want to go ahead and come up. In closing, I want to try to illustrate this way. For Catherine and I on Tuesday nights, we have a little a little date night set up and and it goes kind of like this. We, we watch Fixer Upper. Got anybody that watches Fixer Upper? Any Fixer Upper fans in the house? Wow, two of you. That's sad. Crushes my illustration. That's, that's okay. Fixer Upper is, is a show. You got Chip and Joanna Gaines. And uh, they are uh, incredible uh, people at renovating homes. So this is an HGTV deal. And, and, and what they do is this, is they go to the neighborhood that a couple wants and they, they find the worst house in the best neighborhoods. Typically, these are foreclosed homes. These are homes that have been long gone, uh, somebody being able to live in them. And what they do is the prospective buyer walks up to the house and they're usually floored by how disgusting the house is. You know, they look at it and they're usually like, what, this is the house? Then it goes to commercial break, that kind of thing. And, and they're, they're, they're disgusted about how run down or unattractive the house is. But then they're moved to purchase the house, why? By Joanna's ability to look at this house that exists the way it is and show them what it could be. And so she looks at it and she goes, but hey, but what if we cleaned up this area? What if we knocked down these walls? What if we repurposed this area? What if we did this? What if we did that? What if we didn't leave it like this, but we made it new? And the people go, okay, I could do that, you know? We'll we'll put it all in. We'll go all into this. And so they give their whole, you know, debt to Joanna and Chip to go do their thing. And so they come back months later and they stand before the house and they always have like this uh, picture of what the house used to be. 
And so they're looking at it and they, they say, you know, you ready to see your fixer upper? And they're like, yeah. And then they pull it out and they see their new home and they're amazed. They're amazed. They can't imagine how what used to be is now this. But there's a couple people who aren't shocked. Chip and Joanna. They saw it all along. I want you to leave Fixer Upper and maybe let's just get real corny real quick. All of us are Fixer Uppers. We're all Fixer Uppers. We saw maybe the primary Old Testament example of a Fixer Upper in Jacob, who's given a new name, Israel. You're not the deceiver anymore. You're not the cheater anymore. Now you have new purpose. You're the namesake of my people now. I know for Colby Mache, I'm a fixer-upper. But God comes in. He's shown me through his word. This is what you can be. This is what you will be. And he started a work that he will finish on that last day. And when the things open up and you get to see me for who I really am, it'll be one redeemed and changed forever. One with a new name. I'm a son. I'm a child of God. All of us in this room, we're all fixer-uppers, but God sees in us what we cannot see ourselves. And his promised word here gives us what we need. He gives us what to cling to and say, God, I will not let go. I will not let go until you bless me. It's every Christian in this place today. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would help us to see, Lord, that...